Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode of Conspiracy Unlimited, the author of Judgment of the Nephilim identifies the first woman in history to marry the sons of God and produce the evil hybrid offspring. We can find her name in Genesis chapter 4. You go through the, the lineage of Cain, obviously the wicked son of Adam and Eve, who was banished from Eden altogether. If you look at his lineage as detailed in Genesis chapter 4, it's very interesting that when you get to the seventh generation, Lamech, the, se- the seventh descendant, his family, you see that there's an exceptionally long description. This podcast is sponsored by International Star. Choosing a gift for someone special can be a daunting task. Whether it's a birthday, Mother's Day, Father's Day, anniversary, or any other big day, you want a gift that's unique and perfect for that person who already has everything. International Star Registry can help. They've been providing unique gift ideas for over 25 years. International Star Registry lets you name an actual star in the sky after your special someone. Name a star after someone you care about and they'll remember it forever and never forget your thoughtfulness. The address is getarealstar.com. Getarealstar.com to give someone the gift of a real star in the sky. That address again, getarealstar.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Wishing my sister Carol a very happy retirement. Carol was a wonderful nurse for 33 years, mostly at the Brantford General Hospital, just south of here, where she was a tremendous advocate for her patients and their families. Uh, So now she can kick back and do, I don't know, origami and take Spanish lessons or learn the guitar. And, uh, well, just relax a little. She's earned it. Anyway, we all got together at my other sister's place for a, a surprise party for her. And you know what? When we get together, we always make it a point to avoid talking politics. It's just too divisive. Am I right? And people talk about the great divide these days in the, in the nation's politics, stories about liberals disinviting conservative relatives to Thanksgiving dinners and all that nonsense. I'll tell you about another huge schism. It's actually in the UFOET arena. You have those, on the one hand, who believe we have been and are being visited by extraterrestrials from distant galaxies, uh, and they interacted with ancient human civilizations and gave them technology and so forth. This is the basis for the wildly popular TV series Ancient Aliens. Uh, Then there is the Christian perspective that posits that extraterrestrials are, in fact, fallen angels and that the modern-day alien abduction phenomenon may be a satanic program to create a race of human and fallen angel hybrids. I don't know if these two viewpoints will ever come together anytime soon, but there is a very famous verse in the New Testament that many biblical scholars believe points to this modern-day alien abduction phenomenon. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. 
This is Jesus talking. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. So what was going on in the days of Noah? Well, we are about to explore that very topic. Ryan Peterson is a biblical researcher and writer with an emphasis in ancient Hebrew thought and theology. He received his B.A. He received his Bachelor of Arts from the University of Rochester and his J.D. from Columbia University Law School. He resides in the New York City area with his family. Ryan Peterson, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. The judgment of the Nephilim. Why the judgment of the Nephilim? Well, I, you know, a, a big reason for me writing the book was that, I, you know, I've been researching the Nephilim now for years and read many books, articles, watched videos. And I felt that one thing that I thought that was missing was a real deep dive to really examine every passage in the Bible on the giants. And what I found and what's, you know, the titular chapter of the book, which is called Judgment of the Nephilim, um, really is some, I found some really rev, just some shocking new kind of information regarding the specific timing of the, the judgment of the angels who sinned, the sons of God and the Nephilim, all from the Bible, really in the book of Ezekiel. And so that was kind of the inspiration to see that for the book to say, hey, you know, there's really a lot of information that's not out there in wide circulation from scripture that really I think can add to the discussion and our knowledge about the Nephilim giants. Now, many people get into uh, this aspect of coming at it from sort of the ET UFO arena. How did it work for you? Did you start off with sort of as a Christian trying to look back at, let's say, the modern day alien abduction phenomenon? Or were you simply interested in uh, uh, allusions to giants in, in the Old Testament? How did it work for you? Yeah, it was much more through, you know, as you mentioned, the UFO aliens, ancient alien standpoint. And in researching that, that's really how I came across the accounts of Genesis 6 and the Nephilim. And once I saw that there was really a biblical explanation for it, it really just got me excited to really look into this much deeper. All right. So um, do you you seem to have a pretty good handle on exactly, you know, where this took place pre-flood, where the uh, the fallen angels, I suppose, touched down and commingled with the daughters of men. Uh, talk to me about that. Sure. So again, going through scripture, I just thought that I know that if you look at uh, extra biblical sources, apocryphal sources like the book of Enoch, they reference Mount Hermon as, you know, the primary area. But going through scripture, I was really much more drawn to the Jordan River. And what we flesh out in one of the chapters in the book is that it's really the Jordan River is, you know, I call it the Area 51 <laughs> of the Old Testament. I mean, there are so many supernatural occurrences that, that center on the Jordan. First of you know, it's, it was the threshold, the gate, the entryway into the promised land for the Israelites. You know, they basically marched around the nation of Israel to get to the Jordan River. And when you look at the the mighty Nephilim nations like the Amorites, the kingdoms of Og and Sihon, they were situated right on the Jordan River. Uh, you know, in the, in the days of the ministry of Elisha, the 
you know, the, the Syrian uh, warrior Naaman, he had to dip himself seven times in the Jordan River to be healed. And um, the Jordan River parted when the Israelites went into the Promised Land in the book of Joshua. And I also talk about, of course, the most famous event at the Jordan River was the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there, during his baptism, which he directed down, he it was all but his choice to be baptized there. The, the heavens opened, the, God the Father spoke from heaven audibly for people on earth to hear, and the Holy Spirit descended. And so once I was researching this, there's just and there are many more instances that you see there's a lot of supernatural things happening around the Jordan River. And just looking up the etymology, I found some great uh, 18th and 19th century theological books uh, on this topic where they talk about the etymology that Jordan means they're going down. Even going back to the church fathers, Origen wrote about the Jordan River saying the actual etymology is they're going down, the, the Hebrew Yarad. And you talk about, you know, the days of Jared, how we talk about, we fleshed that out, how the Jared, the patriarch before the flood, that the Nephilim, the, the, the birth of the Nephilim, the incursion of the fallen angels all occurred during the days of Jared, who, again, his name has that same Hebrew root. And why else would this be called the place of their descent, the Jordan River, unless beings descended, unless there was a famous descent? Even, even if you look at Genesis chapter 28, uh, Jacob, when he has the dream of the ladder in Bethel, that's due west of the Jordan River. And he saw, again, angels ascending and descending. So there seems to be a supernatural portal centered over this river. And we also show just lots of examples of how angels in general manifest in the Bible near rivers repeatedly, you know, rarely on mountains, but near rivers all the time. You know, Ezekiel uh, had a number of angelic encounters by rivers. Uh, the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter uh, 11 and 12, he again is at a river and there are angels situated on either side of it, and, I, and, a, and a mighty angel, who I believe was a, the pre-incarnate Christ, standing on the river. So really you see that this is a, a, a clear trend throughout Scripture, and so the Jordan River, I believe, was the location where the sons of God initially came and descended down to earth and took wives, before they took wives you know, um, in the pre-flood world, and I believe that's why it is called the river of their descent, the Jordan River. I had not heard an explanation for the origin of the Jordan River before. That's absolutely new information to me, so thank you for that. Uh, now, do we know uh, the, I- the identity of, I mean, is there sort of a, uh, we, you know, not patient zero, but the, uh, do we have a, a name attached to the the first daughter of man who co-mingled with one of these fallen angels? Yes, we do. And we can find her name in Genesis chapter 4, and I believe it is Nama, who was the, as you go through the the lineage of Cain, um, obviously the wicked son of Adam and Eve, who was banished um, from Eden altogether. If you look in his lineage as detailed in Genesis chapter 4, it's very interesting that when you get to the seventh generation, Lamech, the seventh descendant, his family, you see that there's a, a, an exceptionally long description. And we talk in, in, I discussed in the book about how when you go through the lineages in the Bible, 
there are spe- what, I, what I call special references, that certain individuals who have significant historic impact get a, a few extra verses rather than just saying, you know, that Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob. They get a special distinctive to give more details. And certainly when you get to Lamech, his generation, his family gets a, a really long description. That's, again, we read that one he took unto him two wives— Zilla and Ada. So right there, there's already an allusion to the idea of taking wives. He was the original polygamist in Scripture, and in his family, his all his three sons are named um, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubalcain, and they were all individually fathers of various arts and sciences. Jabal was the father of them that dwell in tents and have cattle, so he was, you know, seemed to be an expert with. Um, herding cattle and husbandry. Jubal was the father of music, of such as handle the harp and organ. And then you have Tubalcan, of course, who was an artificer, meaning he was creating, he was manipulating metal, brass, and iron to make tools, weapons, and things of that sort. But then it's, they also it's suggested make a, that, yeah. that Tubalcan perhaps forged the, the spear that became the spear of destiny that pierced the side of Christ. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so you see, I... I that would have been a good detail to include as well, but yeah, exactly. And and also we also talk about how there are many sources that that say that the god Vulcan is really an allusion to Tubalcain, that he was deified um, at one point in history. And what you see here is this explosion in knowledge, and you get a reference to the sister of Tubalcain. It says the sister of Tubalcain was Nema. That's Genesis four twenty two, and in the you know. In the 1,656 years, depending on your Bible version, before the flood, but that's the general amount of years, there are only four women mentioned by name. Eve and the other three women are all the three women I just named from Lamech's family. Oh, so again, I think, I think the Bible is really zooming in to say that something very significant happened here. I believe Nama was the first mother and bride, the first bride of one of the sons of God and the first mother of a Nephilim. And I had to, you know, a big part of the book was finding, was really going through a lot of the treasure trove of resources of, there are a lot of Jewish and Christian writings going again back to the first century from the church fathers, but definitely in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries on the Nephilim. And so, I, and again, I really feel like a lot of times these, these haven't been explored. And so we quote, and I quote in the book, um, some sources that actually, there were actually sources that actually name Nama as the mother of the Nephilim. And so this is, this is, I can just read a quote from, this is from a 19th century pub, Christian publication called The Rainbow. This is a Christian magazine. This was published in 1883. And it says, he, meaning Lamech, also had a daughter, Nama, who was beautiful, but she was not to be the mother of the promised seed, but rather the fountain whence sprang much of that fairness among the daughters of men, which not long after tempted the angels to go after strange flesh and brought on their defection from God and the fearful corruption of the world before the flood. So, and there's even also an 18th century source that also names Nama as the one who seduced the sons of God. And so, Ah, there are theologians who made this. Sorry, I just wanted to stop you there because that's interesting. I was going to ask you how that 
that commingling took place. And you just answered it for me that she seduced the fallen angels because I was going to ask you whether they took her by force, whether she was deceived. But you're saying that based on your your sources, uh, she seduced them or one of them exactly and you know and and the scripture kind of says that they saw that the women were fair really started with the lust of the eyes and these angels and then when you look at the simple fact that her siblings her brothers had this explosion of knowledge it just appears to be a transaction and Obviously, when you look at extra biblical sources like the Book of Enoch, it says very clearly that the fallen angels taught different arts, sciences, metallurgy to mankind. What I find interesting looking at scripture is that, one, the Bible takes time to note that this particular family basically developed music, animal husbandry on on a large level, and, you know, metallurgy and blacksmithing. But what is also interesting is that when you go to the passages where the God is instructing Moses on the, the construction of the tabernacle and the items of the tabernacle, I show in the book that God supernaturally endowed some of the men who helped Moses build the tabernacle to create metal objects. That, you know, you, you read in Ezekiel 31, God tells Moses that there were certain men who he said he filled them with the spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to devise cunning works to work in gold and in silver and in brass. So God, so wisdom can be supernaturally imparted and downloaded. And so, and it's interesting that the first time God did it, it was to so it was it was working metals. It was creating things out of metal. The same exact thing that Tubal came became the father of before the flood. So I think when you put all the circumstances together and the fact that the Bible highlights this family and this woman, Nama, in particular, because um, you don't see a reference to a sister anywhere in lineages in the Bible that once you name a son, they don't, they don't, right. they don't reference the sister, that what the Bible is telling us, there is something very distinct in that she was the first mother or bride, I should say, of the sons of God who who, would, who then gave birth to the Nephilim. So the, the transaction was here was knowledge for sex, essentially, and, the, and to be able to reproduce with the daughters of men, which is interesting because in the, in the Freemason tradition, they talk about the secrets of Enoch. Uh, you know, they talk about hidden knowledge, and and uh, so it seems to me that the Freemasons are drawing a direct connection uh, to this to this knowledge coming from the fallen angels. A- absolutely, and the other thing to remember is that Lamech was the seventh generation from Adam, you know, coming from Cain, and through Cain's line, Enoch was his cousin. He was the seventh generation from Adam through the godly line. So these were, they were contemporaries. So this, at the time that all this was happening, this is the time that Enoch was alive on earth before, of course, he was taken up to heaven, translated. Right. So it completely fits in. And even in some, if you look at some of this, the symbolism that's used by Freemasonry, a lot of it is a reference, you know, uh, subtly to this to this union, you know, the compass in the square, the compass facing down representing the heaven, the square facing up representing the earth, you know, sons of God, daughters of men, this Mm. fusion of opposites creating the God man, the Superman, you know, this is really what a lot of 
the occult and mystery religions really allude to in their symbolism. And it, it, it's also interesting in the, you know, in the Sumerian civilization, uh, all of a sudden you had sophisticated agricultural techniques springing up. You had, uh, I think, libraries. You had uh, amazing engineering feats, while everywhere else <laughs> people were still, you know, basically living in mud huts. Right. Now, I wanted to, exactly. I wanted to ask you about how, when we think of of fallen angels, we think of, or at least I do, of spiritual beings. Uh, n- not that that is necessarily based in any, anything more than perhaps just tr- church tradition, which isn't necessarily the truth. But if they are spiritual beings, how can they reproduce with with humans? Right. Great question. And the the answer to that primarily, because um, I have a chapter devoted to that about how, you know, what are the mechanics? How can an angel reproduce, you know, with with a human woman? And that, first of all, you're right. I think the general conception of angels is that they're kind of ghost-like. They're immaterial. But um, there are certainly many scriptural exa- examples of angels who... Uh, who can their physical presence in the earthly realm certainly when uh the lord and two angels came to visit abraham at his home he fed them they ate food he cleaned they 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 washed their feet they had a physical presence you know angels touch people all the time they can fight and even kill human beings and so certainly they have a physical body and first corinthians um Chapter 15 really gives a, it's a very fascinating cha- uh, chapter of scripture, and it gives an explanation. That it's, it's giving a, 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 it's contrasting, comparing bodies, and talks about that there is an, an earthly body and a celestial body. And what I believe that chapter is really saying is that it's, just, it's, it's distinguishing between the human flesh and the angelic flesh. And what that bears out is that. The Bible says that to, unto everything that has a body, God has given a seed. That every being that God has given a body to has a seed, meaning DNA, the ability to reproduce. And certainly we can see that the greatest example of a spiritual being carrying that out is with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, um, through obviously its supernatural power, was able to to conceive a child in the womb of Mary, a human woman. So we know factually that it can happen. And I think when we look certainly at the verses, um, whether it's in Jude, in Second Peter, that talks about the angels who, who sinned, and we see that the Bible's pointing to a time that there are angels who committed this sin of fornication. And one verse we look at that isn't quoted often is actually in the book of Job, in Job chapter 4, where the Bible says, Behold, he put, no, he put no trust, being the Lord, in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. And that word folly in the King James Bible, um, which we quote uh, a lot in the book, in addition to the Septuagint, uh, that word folly is used repeatedly in reference to sexual sin. Um, when Dinah was uh, was assaulted by Shechem in Genesis chapter 34, 
it says that the sons of Jacob were grieved because he had wrought folly in Israel lying with Jacob's daughter. Um, in the in the Mosaic law, Deuteronomy chapter two, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy twenty two, when they discuss they're discussing adultery and punishing an adulterous woman, it says because she hath wrought folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house. And there are many examples of this where this folly is actually a reference to sexual sin. Hmm. So when you combine that with the testimony of Genesis six and Second Peter and Jude that ta- that specifically identify the angels going after strange flesh as a as a you know just like Sodom and Gomorrah, um, it's a reference to fornication. And I think that you combine that with the fact that the Bible tells us in First Corinthians 15 that angels, even though they're a different type of flesh from human beings, they have a seed that they are able to reproduce. Fallen angels can reproduce? Who knew? Well, let's talk about the sexual health of us mere mortals for a moment. Not only sexual health, but brain, bone, joint, eye, skin, and heart health as well. Life Extension Supplements, because your body deserves the best. But how do you choose the very best nutritional supplements or even know what's in them? Life Extension has been helping people stay healthy for over 35 years. Just like with the foods you eat, the quality, purity, and potency of the ingredients in your nutritional supplements really do matter. Life Extension supplements set the gold standard. Their formulas are based on the latest scientific research and clinically validated dosages. That's one reason why 98% of their customers recommend Life Extension to their friends and family. Every Life Extension product is backed by a total satisfaction guarantee. The bottom line? Life Extension is the brand you can trust with your health. Check out Life Extension products with special savings. Visit SmartClickIdea.com. That's SmartClickIdea.com. SmartClickIdea.com. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Ryan Peterson is my guest, the author of Judgment of the Nephilim. Now, by the time of the Exodus and Moses sending his spies into Canaan and they come back with reports that, I mean, the whole place seems to be crawling with, with giants. And if the giants are the Nephilim, which they are, in, in other words, they're, they're fallen angel or angelic human hybrids. Uh, and as I say, the, the place seems to be crawling with them at this point. I mean, yeah. how, how did they reproduce so quickly? Right. Well, I, I think that, you know, the that in, in the, certainly in the pre-flood world, that once this kind of incursion took place and the giants were born, that they were just dominating society. They were taking things over. Of course, in Genesis, what we're told is the earth was filled with violence, but that all things had become corrupt, even the animals. And so the Bible is telling us that it was it was spreading so quickly, and this is why God had to put a probation on the earth and say that I'm going to give 120 years for something to change for repentance, uh, and if nothing is going to happen, obviously we're, there will be a judgment, which was the flood. And I just think that the, these they were these were the supermen. They were dominating and ruling the earth. And in our chapter on judgment, the judgment of the Nephilim chapter, where we focus on Ezekiel 31 which I believe is a complete allusion to the pre-flood world.
and the angel who was the chief angel over the pre-flood world, fathering Nephilim, it really goes into detail describing that he had a mighty kingdom that was dominating the world, that he was the first kind of global emperor and that his his giant offspring were just dominating the planet. And I think that it, clearly things accelerated so quickly that God had to take such drastic actions to preserve the last vestige of humanity. You know, this is why we read that Noah was perfect in his generations. Of course, that perfect is, is referring to his physical purity. The, the, the Hebrew there, Tamim, is referring to without blemish, as you would say about a sacrifice, you know, an animal sacrifice, like a sacrificial lamb had to be tamim, without blemish, had to be pure physically. And that's what Noah was, but the numbers were dwindling so greatly that God had taken such drastic action. So the Nephilim were really, uh, just, I, I'm assuming, just dominating the women and dominating the men, probably from a physical and military standpoint as well. And, and, I think that, and as you mentioned, the animals were corrupted as well, so there was some chimeras, some sort of experimentation going on. It, it, exactly, I I, I definitely um, agree with that. And, and and if you think about it, you know, in heaven, you look at the cherubim. There there are hybrid beings in the Bible. I mean, there's no there's no question about it. Even you know, we we see that the, the cherubim may may have a face of a lion, a face of a man, a face of an eagle. We know in Daniel chapter four, King Nebuchadnezzar, who we reference, of course, in the book, he is transformed into a, a beast. He was he was a human animal hybrid for seven years, and it was by decree of the watchers. So, um, there's certainly precedent in scripture for a chimera, or some type of hybrid program and experimentation going on. I believe that's why the Lord declared that even the animals were corrupt. You know, as a as a child, I always remember thinking about, you know, God in the Old Testament and how vengeful and wrathful and, and uh, ordering the Israelites to go into this village and smite. <laughs> we hear that word a lot in the Old Testament, <laughs> smite this. And, you know, every woman, man, and child, and I, and I used to struggle with that. How could an all-loving God do that? But in this context, if we understand that these were not even humans, these were... Uh, these were hybrids that, that uh, he was ordering their their annihilation. Exactly, and that is really one of the main points um, I wanted to bring out in the book is that this is this story, this book is about God's love for all people, just like the gospel or the Bible itself. It's really about God preserving and rescuing humanity from our own sin, and in this case. When you look at the Nephilim, it, it, it clears a lot of these questions up. And you wonder, because even the flood itself, many people have questioned me, um, whether they're friends, people I'm witnessing to on the street, and they'll, they'll bring up the flood. How could God flood the whole world? You know, killing children, killing young people, same thing with the Canaanites. But when you understand it from the context of the Nephilim and these two bloodlines, and like you said, they were not human. This was something that was that was other than human that was threatening to destroy humanity altogether and prevent the birth of the Messiah. So physically we're being corrupted, spiritually being brought into sin, and the path to our redemption was going to be cut off for good. God was stepping in to save us. And I think that's the interesting thing is that when you look through Scripture, time and time again when it comes to the Nephilim, God personally intervenes to fight them. 
And this is, and you don't see this in other contexts, but when it comes to the giants, God is constantly coming in and fighting the battle. Whether it's King Og, he goes before the, before the Israelites to make sure the enemy is defeated and leave, basically leaves the Israelites just to clean up the mess. And so that is the running theme through Scripture that I bring out in the book, is that this was so serious that God made sure that he was going to solve this problem. Why? Out of love for us. And so that's why there was this the genocide that many people refer to of the Canaanites because it was about getting rid of this other race of beings that was threatening to wipe out humanity altogether. Now, I'd mentioned, you know, Moses uh, in Exodus sending his spies into Canaan, coming back with reports of, of giants and so forth, but that's after the flood. So, obviously, the flood, I, I often refer to that as God's attempt to chlorinate the gene pool, uh, that that didn't that didn't wipe out the uh, the Nephilim because there they are uh, in after the flood uh, populating Canaan. So how did that happen? How did they survive that? Sure, great question. So there's an interesting. Well, first of all, I think they survived it through uh, the wives of Noah's sons, and particularly the wife of Ham. And there's an interesting detail when you look at the genealogies before the flood of the patriarchs, is that most of the patriarchs before the flood were had their first child either by 60 years, maybe 80 years, 90, 100 years. Noah did not have his children, his first child, until until he was 500 years old. And so why is that significant? Because that was he got on the ark when he was 600. So this was already 20 years after God warned him that he was going to judge the earth. So the corruption from the Nephilim was already well rampant by that time. Now, why did Noah wait so long? I speculate um, that you know, his, you know, his lineage, his grandfather was Methuselah. He knew who, of course, Methuselah was the, the the son of Enoch, who his whole name was a the prop. His name means that when you know when he dies, it shall come. He was kind of the the time. His life his lifespan was the with the doomsday clock for the for the earth. Right. Because at the time of his death, the flood was going to come. So maybe Noah thought that there was no hope, and maybe that's why he didn't have children. But once God assured him that he was going to be saved, he did have children. And that's that we know for a fact. It wasn't until after God instructed him to build the ark that he had children. So I think that by the time his sons were born and old enough to marry, the options were very limited genetically. And I think Ham, who of course is revealed to be uh, a, a wicked son in, in chapter 9 of, of Genesis, I believe it's through his wife um, that the Nephilim gene was able to pass through into the post-flood world. I don't believe there's any instances of angels taking wives ever again after the flood, but that gene passed through. And what I really bear out through Scripture is that when you trace the lineage of the giants after the flood, they all go back to Canaan, who, of course, was the son of Ham. Fascinating, fascinating. I'm learning a lot. (laughs) The, the 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 then the question is well uh, what happened to the giants where did they go uh, we have of course reports my good friend Lynn Marzuli has been um, you know uh, researching these elongated skulls in places like Peru and uh, we have reports of giants in North America uh, um, you know perhaps buried in these enormous uh, earthen mounds and so forth 
So did the um, did the Nephilim get on boats and cross the Atlantic and settle in North America and in South America? Well, uh, that's certainly possible. I, I also um, am of the thought that the Earth itself was possibly a Pangea at some point before breaking up into into continents. Um, but but you know what the Bible seems to make clear is that they were dominating the Earth. So the giants, you know, the skulls or remains that are found in various continents, and in addition to the monoliths that are found all over the earth that I believe the giants also had a connection to. Um, that I think is, is consistent with the fact that, you know, that, that the scriptures say that they were dominating the earth. And so, um, so of course their impact and influence is going to be found in many, many, many different countries, not just in the middle East. And I mean, we, if you go back, uh, even, you know, papers in, in New York City, where you are, uh, early early uh, 20th century, late 19th century, lots and lots of stories of archaeologists recovering uh, the grave sites of, of, uh, of giants, enormous um, skeletons, eight, nine feet tall. Now, some people argue, well, you have to understand these newspapers, this was in the uh, sort of the, uh, these were kind of tabloids, the tabloids of today, it was all sensationalized and, and so forth. I don't know, what do you make of those accounts of, of uh, giant skeletons being unearthed in North America? Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible. I think it's, I think it's certainly possible that, I mean, because we don't know the age of them. I mean, I believe it's certainly possible that giants, you know, walk through North America at some point in in antiquity. Um, but what I really look to in terms of the evidence of their presence in many different countries and areas is really just the, the buildings and structures um, from ancient times and these massive structures and megaliths. And that to me is, again, you know, that that can't be denied in terms of the fact that it some clearly it was a something that was constructed that took a great deal of effort, time, coordination, strength, and the sheer physical strength. We see some of these structures. Um, we, in fact, we have a photo in the book of, of Gilgal Raphaim, um, which, of course, is, you know, you're talking tens of tons of stones used to build these massive structures that, of course, are totally aligned with the sun and can only really be viewed properly from the air. And these this that's older than Stonehenge. So... That also, I think, is evidence of this, again, this advanced, powerful civilizations going back thousands and thousands of years. So then the, then the question is, well, uh, you know, there wasn't another flood uh, to, uh, to chlorinate the gene pool. Uh, we should then continue to see giants roaming the earth. We, could, we should continue to see uh, offspring of... Uh, or, or or hybrids wandering around. Where are they? Right. Well, I think that certainly from the, the scriptural account that once you're getting to around 1000 BC, the time of David, that the the giant population itself is becoming much more smaller and more diluted, and um, to the point that when you get to Goliath and the, the final giants you see mentioned. Um, they're really 
they're you know a much more genetically diluted form of the Nephilim of the pre-flood era. And so I think certainly from Scripture, it seems to, to Scripture seems to point to the fact that they were completely wiped out. Certainly in the Promised Land, that they were eradicated, and David and his mighty men finished off, basically finished off and fought the last giants that were left. And it's interesting that Scripture really just takes time to describe them, the final giants, kind of in in rapid succession to make sure that it's clear that uh, that we know that they are that they were wiped out. An interesting thing also as well is that once the final giant referenced in the Bible is killed in the very next chapter and let me just get to that chapter the very next chapter so this is this is first chronicles 21 you have this you have this giant who's called the just called the egyptian in scripture who is killed by benaiah one of david's mighty men um <clears throat> excuse me once he's killed in the very next chapter the very next verse of the the first verse of first chronicles chapter 21 it says and satan stood up against israel and provoked david to number to number Israel. So I find it interesting that after the, the death of the final giant mentioned in the Bible, the devil himself now has to step in to start causing, to basically spiritually attack King David. And so that to me, again, I think the Bible is trying to indicate that now the giants have been eradicated. So now the devil has, it has, does not, no longer has these giants at his disposal to try and wipe out Israel and, and thwart God's plan of redemption. So now he actually the, himself, and there are very few instances where you see that in the Old Testament, but in the very next verse, it says Satan took action against David to lure him into sin. Right. Now, when... Christ warns uh, that in the end times it'll be like it was in the days of Noah. Uh, in your estimation, your your research is that is he describing the the modern day alien abduction phenomena and once again the creation of of hybrids. Uh, does, are we talking about the the UFO alien abduction phenomenon here? I think that can be part of it because a big, um, you know, in, I, I think that certainly the apocryphal books, but I think the Bible also as well indicates that demons are the spirits of the dead Nephilim. And so I think when you talk about the UFO phenomenon and abductions and uh, close encounters, you know, that, that we're seeing, um, you know, a manifestation of the demonic realm that's being that in the guise of alien beings and so so i think that and I, and I go into that to really show that through scripture that how that demons really are very different from angels you know they don't have bodies they have a strong aversion to water um, and they make people extremely violent and they don't get the respect that angels are given in scripture so I, they, I think they're very distinct beings in scripture and that now through some some means that I, i'm not aware of but certainly demons certain times demons are allowed to come and interact in the human space whether it's demon possession whether we're talking alien abduction where we're talking an alien encounter that that's allowed that happens in society you know 
at various times all over society. And as we as we go towards the end times, I think it's going to be accelerated because what's going to happen is we're going to see a return of not just the demons, but also the fallen angels. You know, the angels who sinned in Genesis 6 have been locked in the abyss under chains of darkness, as it said in the book of Jude. I believe that in Revelation chapter 9, verse 11, that abyss, the bottomless pit, the abusos in Greek, that pit is opened, and those beings are released. So they're going to come back from the earth, and then you have in Revelation 12, Satan and his angels being kicked out of heaven. So it's almost like a second flood where you have, you know, the waters, you know, the, the heaven, the, 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 the windows of heaven opened at the flood and the fountains of the deep. So you had water coming from below and from above. In the end times, you're going to have this fallen angelic demonic invasion that's coming from below the ground, out of the abyss, the bottomless pit, as well as from above. And I think at that time, you're going to see what Daniel chapter 2.43 refers to when it says that they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, that there's this something is going to happen in the end times where there's going to be this attempt to mingle um, again with the seed of men, which again, I believe the seed of men is a reference to human DNA. And so there's going to be some attempt to do this. And that that could be the the alien abduction phenomenon, so-called. Yes, certainly. I mean, obviously, you know, with so many, in so many alien abduction scenarios, the focus is what? Genetics, that they're doing some type of sure. creating, sexual reproductive or, yeah. Creating more hybrids, creating, uh, creating an, uh, an army for, for Satan, perhaps. I- exactly, I- exactly. And when you think about, uh, you know, even the mark of the beast and um, the simple fact that there is no redemption if you take the mark now why would that be i don't get into this in the book because um the book doesn't focus too much on the end times but you know my theory is that it's because by taking the mark it's somehow altering you genetically so that you're no longer in the image of god you know that's satan's and satan's plan is just keep keep corrupting the image as the book by doug ham is called to keep corrupting the image of god to corrupt us to be something else other than human and i believe that the mark will be connected to that which is why there's no redemption for it because it's going to alter us to some point that's That's irreversible that is odd because you're right it does it flies in the face of god's grace and 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 forgiveness and, and as you say redemption why is this one thing so unforgivable uh, well, perhaps it, because you're no longer fully human. You're no longer, as you say, in, in God's image. So uh, this is fascinating. I learned a lot, and uh, congratulations, uh, Ryan, on, on the book. How do people get a hold of uh, the, uh, the Judgment of the Nephilim? Sure. You can uh, go to judgmentofthenephilim.com. That's J-U-D-G-M-E-N-T, of the Nephilim.com. Um, we have the, you know, the synopsis there, lots of information. The book is available on paperback. It's also available in the ebook version, Kindle. And um, that's the easiest way to get it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. Before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I want to give you a heads up on what's coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited. But before that, we'll do our weekly draw. Of course, the winner receives a copy of my Strange Planet Volume 1 CD. First, let me talk to you a minute uh, about weight loss. I don't need to tell you how hard it can be to stick with a diet 
or an exercise program. You know, unfortunately, the commitment to weight loss fades pretty quickly. Many people simply give up in the first 90 days. The key is having the right mindset. Getting thin and staying that way lies in our thought processes. And hypnotherapy can make all the difference. Now, clinical hypnotherapist Dr. Steve G. Jones has created a set of five audio hypnotic sessions that apply the power of hypnosis to reprogram the mind and replace bad habits with vibrant, positive new habits and help you achieve natural and long-lasting weight loss. Weight loss hypnotherapy really works. And it's available now at a special discount. Isn't it time to lose those extra pounds? Check out Weight Loss Hypnotherapy right now at SmartClickSavings.com. That's SmartClickSavings.com. All right, it's time to do our weekly draw. Reach into the enormous cheese puffs jar. And let's see who we have here. Mike Dutch of Los Gatos, California. Mike Dutch, Los Gatos, congratulations. If you want to get in on the weekly draw, it's real simple. Just rate and review this podcast. Grab a screenshot of that and email it to me at richardserrett1 at gmail.com. richardserrett, the numeral one, at gmail.com. Don't forget to include your full name and mailing address and good luck. Coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited, a revealing look at demons, devils, fallen angels, and the darker side of human nature with author Marie Jones. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats, we need. We need constant petting. <laughs>